Welcome to The Secrets of the Self-Made, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of some of the most successful and inspiring entrepreneurs and self-made individuals. Join us as we delve into the stories of those who have achieved great success, uncovering the secrets that allowed them to overcome challenges, push through obstacles, and ultimately achieve their dreams. From business magnets to creative geniuses, we explore the traits, habits, and mindsets that set these individuals apart and offer valuable insights and practical advice for anyone seeking to achieve their own success. Sit back, relax, and prepare to discover the secrets of the self-made. Welcome back to the Secrets of the Self-Made. Today we have Dr. Vleet Mall, PhD and author. He is a renowned growth mindset teacher who delivers his training programs and seminars around the world, both in person and online through Heart Mind Institute. He's a meditation teacher, executive coach, seminar leader, social entrepreneur who works at that intersection of personal and social transformation. Fleet founded the Prison Mindfulness Institute and National Prison Hospice Association, catalyzing two national movements while serving a 14-year mandatory minimum federal drug sentence from 1985 to 1999. Dr. Mall developed the Radical Responsibility Empowerment Model that embraces 100% ownership for each and every circumstance we face free of blaming oneself or others. Fleet is a Zen master in the International Zen Peacemaker Order and a senior Dharma teacher in the global Shambhala meditation community. He is the author of Radical Responsibility that was published in 2019 and also how to move beyond blame, fearlessly live our higher purpose and become an unstoppable force for good in the world. Fleet, I am so happy that you said yes to being on The Secrets of the Self-Made because you could not be a more perfect example of what I believe it means to be self-made. So thank you so much for being here. I'm self-made in the sense that I first dug myself a big hole and then managed to climb back out. So <laughs> yeah, so that's what I'm so interested in hearing. So let's start off with what is radical responsibility? How does that differ or how does that transcend blame? I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, well, I often describe radical responsibility as voluntarily embracing 100% responsibility or ownership for each and every circumstance we face in life, which includes those circumstances that we can see we had something to do with. We had some role in them or Maybe, you know, they just occurred because we weren't paying attention or we're being naive or didn't have good boundaries or, but we can see upon reflection and digging in a bit, we can see, well, we do have some relationship to it, but also embracing 100% ownership for those circumstances that we can't really see we had anything to do with. They just seemingly fell out of the sky, landed in our lap. There they are. And the most important distinction here that you already brought up is between ownership and blame. This has absolutely nothing to do with blame. It's obviously not about blaming others. But it's not even one iota about blaming ourselves, and it certainly has nothing to do with blaming victims. 
It's about ownership and empowerment and focusing our energy where it can have the most impact. And that's really, for the most part, with ourselves. So we've all been kind of enculturated into mindsets of shame and blame and punishment and reward. It runs pretty strongly through the culture. And when something happens, we think somebody's got to be to blame. And of course, we've all experienced blame in our lives and the attendant shame, and we don't want any more than that. We don't want any more of that. So we almost instinctually deflect blame. You know, we all have these very tender, vulnerable hearts, and we've been bruised enough in life. So we almost instinctually deflect blame. The problem with that is when we do blame others or situations or what have you for whatever circumstances or challenges we're dealing with, in attributing the causation to things outside of ourselves and focusing on that, we're really giving our power away because we can't control the people in our lives. We can't control the weather. We can't control life. We can actually, through radical responsibility and self-empowerment, we can have more of an influence, but still, we can't really control the people in our lives or the world. And Lord knows we all try, right? We're honest with ourselves. We haven't succeeded very much with it. And we also know beyond a shadow of a doubt that people are uncontrollable. Why? Because we know that we're uncontrollable. No matter how much somebody tries to control us or influence or something, we're going to find our way to get our own needs met. So this is really a choice to place our energy where it can do the most good, which is with our own self-regulating, our own, this incredibly complex thing known as the human brain and the human nervous system, the most complex system in the known universe. So learning how to self-regulate that so we can keep ourselves in a well-resourced place and really be aware of our thought processes and the type of feelings that those thought processes generate, and then the kind of behaviors that usually arise from that, really taking ownership of that whole process so we can really get into a self-leadership position in our lives. And that's really the place that where we can really have positive influence with others and with the world is from that place of self-leadership. Obviously, you are a leader, a teacher, a coach, Zen master. How do you go about teaching people to take that kind of responsibility? Do you have a methodology? What is it? Is it just insight? Is it followed by application? What does that application actually look like? Well, I generally teach the radical responsibility model in a very experiential way. I used to do radical responsibility seminars all over the country and some in Europe as well. Before the pandemic, I was kind of a road warrior doing that quite a bit. Now I have my online radical responsibility course, which is based on live seminar that I filmed. I think it was the most recent version is one that I filmed in Atlanta prior to the pandemic. So I help people experience these distinctions and really get, because I lead them through processes where I really take people into what, for a better term, you might call the victim mindset, where we're really attributing causation to everything outside of ourselves. And we're feeling victimized by specific situations or people or really to get into that and feel that and see where that takes us cognitively, emotionally, and what that's likely to lead to. And then I invite them to shift that perspective, to shift the mindset, and look at it instead through the frame of ownership and see what kind of thought processes, what kind of emotional energy, what kind of motivation that brings up. And people really get it, that it just kind of changes everything. And they see how that victim mindset, which is one pole on Cartman's drama triangle, which fuels just continual drama and suffering throughout the world at the micro level, between our own ears, within our own family, as well as the geopolitical level, that triangulation between the victim mindset, the mindset of the persecutor, and the mindset of the rescuer, which is just continually fueling this triangulation and conflict and drama and so forth. And so we go through these experiential sites where they really get how they get hooked into that and how as long as they stay hooked on that mindset, it leads 
endless suffering and a lack of productivity. It really undermines their lives, their relationships, their businesses, and so forth. And then we experiment with reframing things and seeing things in a different way, experiencing things in a different way. And they really get it. They get that, oh, wow, I'm talking about the same circumstance. I often have them work with specific circumstances they've been through, right? And really go into the whole victim mindset around it and then shift that and at least attempt to take an ownership perspective on that and see where that takes them. And they experience that it takes them to a very different place where they have a sense of possibility and they have choice. And they really get the distinction. And we land the distinction experientially that circumstances are essentially neutral. Once they've happened, you can't change them in circumstances. It is what it is. And, you know, that doesn't mean that some circumstances aren't wonderful and some are horrible. Some circumstances are heinous and unjust and criminal, but they're neutral in the sense that we always have choice. We always have choice in how we're going to respond to the circumstance. But most of us lead our lives in a very conditioned way. It's not even like it's our own fault. It's a human condition. We've all been highly programmed throughout our lives, culturally and from our family of origin and so forth. And we're pretty convinced until we really look more deeply at our lives that if circumstance A happens, I'm going to feel B. That's just the way it is. And then I'm going to respond with action C, right? That's just the way it is. And there's no freedom in that. And it may seem very reasonable. It seems like, well, everybody would be really pissed off if that happened. Okay, well, so what? Where does that take you? What is another way I can look at that circumstance? I look at a circumstance that I'm struggling with or I feel upset about. Okay, how can I look at this and find options? And where are my choices? And what's the way to frame this that's going to give me the most energy to move forward in my life? What is the most creative way I can respond to this? Which could include, in some cases, when people have really had horrible things happen to them, that may need validation and needing support or even seeking justice. But doing that from an empowerment mindset is very different than doing it from a victim mindset. So it's really helping people see that this is what opens up possibility in their lives. It's where all their personal power, all their energy is. Because, you know, if you and I had a business relationship and somehow it fell apart and we were both mad as hell and we're getting ready to, probably not with you, to go to fisticuffs, but a couple of guys, we might be ready to go to fisticuffs or we're going to lawyer up and sue each other, right? But fortunately, we have our friend, don't do that. You're going to blow all your money on lawyers. I know this great mediator. Go see the mediator, talk it out. So we do that and the mediator interviews us separately and then brings us together. So I don't know what, you know, it's a he said, she said thing. You're both great salespeople, very compelling stories. But I'll tell you what, I'm going to put together a focus group and we do have the video of the situation. We're going to show that to them. I'm going to get this group of smart people that don't know either one of you, couldn't give a hoot about either one of you. We'll see what they say, right? So the mediator comes back and brings us in the office and says, well, I have to say, Tracy, that the group did feel that you bear more of the responsibility. And I'm thinking, oh, of course, I'm glad you gathered together such a smart group of people. And they realize it's all Tracy's fault. And you go, no, no, please. You know, they do feel you bear some of the responsibility here. You know, in fact, it's, you know, kind of like 60, 40, 70, 30. And I go, well, I don't really believe that. As long as they realize it's mostly or it's really all her fault. Media keeps pushing. Okay. Maybe I had some small role to play. I don't think it rises to third, but I'll own my part as long as they realize it's mostly her fault. Right. And I feel vindicated. Right. I feel good about it. Does that really make sense? Because if I'm convinced that a situation I'm by definition unhappy about is caused 60, 70 percent, whatever percent by you, how much of my power did I just give away? I gave away at least 60 or 70 percent, but really I gave away all of it because I control you. No. And so I don't have a different change of state until you change your behavior. So I just put you in charge of my internal state. And we all do that all the time. We do it around negative 
challenging. So we also do it in terms of positive. It really doesn't make sense there either, because maybe you're doing something. I'm really happy because Tracy's doing this and it's working really well. Well, what if Tracy stops doing it? Then where am I? So it's really about bracing in. It's not that we're islands and we're not living in relationship with people and we're not affected by all this, but it's just taking a lot of ownership and self-agency to focus our energy where we really have choice. And that's what opens up possibility in our lives and really acting from that place is where we can actually create really genuine relationships in our life as well. So who would you say is your primary audience? Who are the people that this most impacts and that you are influencing? with this material? Well, you know, it varies. I have a strong background in meditation and mindfulness and the Dharma. So I'm well known in the world of Western Buddhism, as well as the secular mindfulness world, and as well as the people interested in bringing mindfulness into prisons and the criminal justice world. So I'm well known in all those areas. And people, the audience in those areas uh, really respond well to the radical responsibility model. In many cases, applying it to their lives personally, Prisoners respond really well to it. And so there, it's a lot of people responding in personal terms. They see how this gives them a possibility of stepping out of the drama and the negative drama in their lives they feel so locked into and suffering with. They really see, oh, it's actually possible to step out of that and create something different. So that's a big part of that audience. But also, another part of my life, I've been a business consultant, executive coach, management consultant for a long time. And I've started to do more publicly there and with my online program, starting to really also reach an audience of entrepreneurs and business people. And they love this model because it's so empowering. And it allows you to really focus where you can make a real difference in your business. And because it's really easy in business to get focused on all the reasons we're not succeeding and attribute that to the weather, the marketplace, what the feds are doing with the interest rate or the effect of the pandemic or the whatever the current administration is in Washington or your competition or unfair competition or you don't have enough capital, you don't have enough resources or your employees are all, you can't hire good people, you know, a million things like that. Yeah. Instead of focusing on the one thing that's going to lead to success or failure, and that is your own thoughts, feelings and behaviors as right. you move your business forward. So this self-reliance or responsibility, I can't really think of anything where it wouldn't be applicable, like mm -hmm. health and wellness, personal professional performance. So I'm curious, you were originally sentenced to 30 years with no possibility of parole. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm super curious of what kept you from giving up and what was the key to transforming your life during your prison sentence or years in prison. And was that the influencing factor that led to what you're doing now? Yeah, very much so. So I'll just try to briefly cover a bit of that. So I have an interesting, I'm fortunate that my pre-prison background was a mixed bag. You know, obviously I got involved and I went headlong into the, I graduated from high school in 68 as an angry young man with a big hole in my gut. I grew up in a good middle-class family with good values, but we had alcoholism in the family. And, you know, I grew up with, kind of a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde thing with one of my parents. And that creates a lot of splitting. And I came into adolescence and as a young adult with a big hole in my gut, you know, angry and trying to fill that with anything and everything. And, and so really alienated. And I'd lost faith in the kind of culture I was brought up in, the religion I was brought up in, you know, just none of it. And then the counterculture was happening. I just went headlong into that, right? But I was also always a spiritual seeker and interested in the mind. So 
I was continuing to educate myself and as well as got involved in a lot of craziness and then eventually left the country. I was so politically alienated. I think when Richard Nixon was reelected, I just couldn't handle it anymore. But I was also looking for something genuine and real. In my very early childhood, I felt really plugged into life. Things felt magical and real and awesome. And then that all kind of went away. It just went to gray tones early in my life, going to school, maybe with the alcohol of my family. I don't know. But at any rate, I wanted that back. And so I started traveling in Latin America, Mexico, Central America. And really, I was kind of headed to Peru. I had some idea about finding something genuine in Peru. I don't even know where I got that, but I had that strong idea. And I did eventually. But so I fell along the way. I fell into small time drug smuggling as a way to live outside the system. And I justified that with all this us versus them thinking. And, you know, before I can untangle all that, in the midst of that, I went, ended up going back to school, got a master's degree, very intense three-year clinical training program and in integrating both Buddhist and Western psychology. And there got deeply involved with the Buddhist path, which I've been interested in since high school and got involved with my Tibetan teacher that became my first spiritual teacher. And so I was very involved in that path, but I still had this shadow life going on that I kept secret from people. And I got married and my marriage fell apart and I was keeping my problems at bay with the money. And it was just all complicated. I knew it had to end. I knew I had to get out of it. I eventually did stop, but other people had continued and they then got in trouble and invited me to the party, so to speak. So eventually I was indicted. And on the advice of my teacher, turned myself in and something I've actually never regretted. I wasn't keen about going on the run, but I was terrified of going to prison and they were threatening me with a lot of time in prison. But anyway, I did. And so my day of sentencing, well, the day before sentencing, I got convicted of this so-called kingpin statute. And the only reason I went to trial because I didn't really feel I was guilty. If they had just charged me with the smuggling and the rest of it, I would have just pled guilty and put myself at the mercy of the court. But I didn't feel I was guilty. And that was the charge that carried this no parole sentence. So at any rate, I was convicted. And then I was awaiting sentencing. And the night before my sentencing, I, they had me in an isolation cell, kind of like a suicide. I wasn't suicidal at all. I was anxious. I couldn't sleep. But they had me under observation, bright lights and everything. The next day, I was going to be sentenced. And I could be sentenced from anywhere from 10 to life. And if I got a life sentence, that would be it. The only thing that would get you out would be a presidential pardon. And that's not going to happen. So at any rate, I couldn't sleep. And somewhere a little bit before dawn, I just had this real desire just to see outside. And I climbed up on this built-in stainless steel toilet sink thing in the cell and got up there where there was a little window up high. I could peer out there and I could see the night sky and the stars. And I just stared at that and just kind of let my mind immerse into that. And then something just came over me, a calm. And then I stepped down, sat on the side of my bunk, and I just felt this profound certainty that I would not give up on myself. I would not give up on my life. I would not give up on my son. No matter what happened the next day, even if I got life in prison, I was not going to give up on my life, myself, or my son, who was nine years old at the time. And so I was sentenced. I was hoping maybe so for like 15 years, I got 30. So my knees actually kind of buckled at that moment. My lawyer was there holding me up. And, and fortunately, I was sentenced under the old law, prior what they call the old law, prior to 1987, where you still got a lot of good time. And so you have a parolable sentence, you can go to the parole board after serving a third of your sentence, right? Doesn't mean you're going to get it, but you can go. It's a possibility. So I had no access to the parole board, but there was a lot of good time. So, and I didn't realize that at first. The paper the next day after my sentencing said I'd be six, I was 35 then, said I'd be 65 before I have any chance of release. And I thought that was the deal. And it took a couple months before I got to the federal prison where I did my time and kind of got in and figured things out. 
that I finally figured out all this good time thing. And then I realized if I stayed out of trouble, which is not easy to do in prison, I'd serve 18 and a half on the 30. And then it took three years for my appeal to go through the courts. And on appeal, they knocked off one count, brought my aggregate sentence to 25. And on that, I knew then I would serve 14 and a half, which still felt like a long time. Luckily, I stayed out of trouble. And that's what I served 14 and a half years. So but obviously, all that really got my attention, (laughs) to Hmm. say the least. And I was more than anything, I was devastated over the impact of my very selfish decisions, the impact that was going to have on my son now who's going to grow up without a dad. And I just went to a real dark night of the soul around that following my sentencing. And I became radically dedicated to getting all the negativity out of my life and doing something with all I've been given to leave a better legacy for my son than just his dad went to prison, even his dad died in prison, because I had no surety that I would survive my time. And Then when I got to that prison where I did my time, it was the U.S. Medical Center for Federal Prisoners in Springfield, Missouri, which is the maximum security federal prison. There are other hospitals in the federal prison system, but this is the highest security one. So the patients all come from the high security penitentiaries like Lompoc and Lewisburg and Atlanta and others. And I got there. They had about about a thousand, let's say about 600 medical patients, about 400 psychiatric patients. And then about 300 just regular inmates there to help run the place. And I was in that, the general population on work cadre. And so I remember, I'll never forget the first day there. You go through this intake where they all the intentional, otherwise shaming kind of exercise that you go through and getting booked into the prison and being given your clothing and so forth. And then I come out in this hallway and I'm walking down the hallway and I'm seeing men being wheeled along in wheelchairs, emaciated from AIDS and cancer men who are paraplegic and quadriplegic being wheeled in wheelchairs. I see men who are blind being assisted down the hall. I see men coming out of the psych ward doing the Halidol or Thorazine two-step or out in the yard talking to trees. And it was just like a Fellini movie of suffering. And that really shook me. And I feel very grateful for that because as you can imagine, I arrived there pretty caught up in the drama of my own situation. At that point, I'm thinking I'm going to be in prison for 30 years. I've torched my life. My life as I knew it is over, consumed with the devastation I feel around what I've done to my son and really caught up in the drama of my own situation. And then I'm confronted with all this suffering. And it just completely shook me out of that self-preoccupied drama. And I realized I need to figure out how to show up here and serve. Fortunately, the influence of the good values of my family and very much the values of my Buddhist teacher who, as far as I could tell, just 24-7 was in service of humanity. So that kind of motivation kicked in, and I just spent 14 years trying to add as much value as I could in that world and to transform myself in the process. Wow. And so what did that look like? How were you of service for 14, 13 and a half years? This is also where the radical responsibility model was born, as you might suspect. So I'll, I'll touch on both those things. So as I was walking down that hall, I was actually headed for the education department because somebody had told me, go get a job somewhere. Otherwise, they're going to put you in the kitchen. You'll be doing kitchen prep. And some, I guess, maybe somebody learned that I had a degree. So they said, you could probably get a job in the school teaching. So I went there and I had a master's degree and they hired me. And so to be what they call an inmate tutor. And so that's what I did was my day job for 14 years from nine to 430 or whatever. I taught school and I was helping people learn to read. I was helping people 
get a GED in English or Spanish. So I taught classes in basically all the grade school, high school, middle school, that whole kind of curriculum leading up to being able to get a GED. I taught all of that both in English and Spanish. I also taught ESL classes for people who were learning English and tutored people who were learning to read and so forth. And I trained other tutors to train people to be able to coach people in learning to read and so forth. So that was my day job. I was very involved there. And I learned a lot because in prison, you have no protection from anybody or anything. You live on these floors where mostly and you're in big dorms and multiple bedrooms, but even there were only a few single rooms. It took me two and a half years to get one. I was lucky enough to keep it. But even there, you don't have a lock on the door. So, you know, the littlest guy in a place can put a lock, you know, a padlock in a sock and open your door and kill you while you're sleeping. I slept lightly for 14 years. I still have a pretty strong startle response. So you have to get along with people. And in school, if you're going to be effective teaching, you have to be able to step into some kind of role. But if you're not really skillful at that, you're going to get confronted. Like, who the hell do you think you are? What are you, the police? And I learned the hard way. I had to really, because a lot of them, my students, they were angry. Not, school was nothing but bad memories for them. And they were forced to go to school. And if they refused, they'd send them to the hole. And then they'd come back angrier. They're sitting there on their desk, you know, looking at me like this. And I had to really take it slow and make friends with them till I could get to the point where I could influence them and get them interested in doing something for themselves. And a few times when I tried to shortcut the process a little bit, it blew up on me. I learned the hard way, but I really learned a lot of being skillful communication and being skillful with people in that job. I also trained as a meditation teacher. So I wanted to try to get a meditation group going. I went to the chapel and I remember talking to this woman, a Methodist chaplain, a woman, and I said, do you have any kind of like meditation groups here? Anything like that? No, no, we don't have anything like that. You know, I'm trained as a teacher. I'd like, well, inmates aren't starting nothing around here. It has to be sponsored by an outside church. And we have a long list of churches trying to get in there, so forget about it. And I had noticed as I walked to her office that the actual chapel space was empty. And I said, well, can I go sit in there and meditate for a while? And I could tell she was trying to think of some reason to tell me no. She couldn't come up with one. So yeah, but if anybody comes, you'll have to go. So I did that. And I just started coming down there regularly. And I tried finding times that were open regularly. And then I invited a couple other guys who were interested. And by osmosis, we became a group. And eventually, we're connected with my spiritual community on the outside. And eventually, we had a twice-weekly group, Saturdays for three hours and Wednesday evenings for two hours. And so I led that group for 14 years. The average day for patients was probably two or three months, although some and many actually died there. But most of them got some kind of treatment and went back to their home institutions. And the general population, which I was part of, a lot of the guys didn't like being there. They didn't like being around a hospital. Many were from the East Coast or the West Coast. So they wanted to be around a prison where they were still in the convict game. They wanted to be a prison where there was more going on, gambling and drugs and all the rest of it. So it turned over pretty. The average day there was probably 10 months to a year. I was there for 14 years. So I saw a lot of people come and go. And so there was a lot of turnover in the meditation group. But I had a few guys that really stuck with it. They were there for a few years. And some of them went on to become practitioners outside. I'm still in touch with some of them today. A couple of them had really successful lives. But I probably introduced several thousand men to meditation over that time. I also knew I needed to deal with my own substance abuse issues. So they had a 12-step group there. It was a combination of AA and NA. And I got involved in that. And that was a mainstay for me. The outside volunteers we had that came in were amazing. And it was a real blessing to be in that space once a week where you were like a human being. You weren't a convict. And, and that path, that whole 12-step path was a very important part of my change. And then along with that, I am really was leading a very disciplined life, right? I'm either working or I'm working out, getting healthy, or I'm up in my 
bunk studying or practicing meditation. I was practicing several hours a day. I was just absolutely committed to practicing. I was practicing like my hair was on fire. And I knew anything good I'd be able to do there wouldn't come out of talk. It would come out of my practice. So I was leading this incredibly disciplined life. But a couple of years into it, I got involved in a service organization where we showed movies up on the medical wards because at that time they showed movies for the general population and anybody who could leave their ward in the basketball gym. But the patients who couldn't leave the wards didn't have access. So we would take a small projector and film up there and we'd show the movies up there. And I started getting a relationship with guys who were suffering with cancer and AIDS and other illnesses. And then also going to the psych ward. And then they started bringing all the AIDS patients because this is the AIDS epidemic was just going into full swing. All the major penitentiaries there. And they had them locked back in a psych ward for their own protection because there was a lot of fear around AIDS. They hadn't done much education. So I started kind of getting in touch with them because I would take the projector back there. I got to know them a little bit, and I started reaching out to outside organizations, and that way I got in touch with and became friends with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and Stephen and Andrea Levine, and many important figures in the conscious living and dying and the AIDS movement and so forth. In talking to the chaplain, he told me about another prisoner that was trying to get something going and working with the medical surgical psychologist. I went to met with him, and he put us together, and we started the first hospice program inside a prison anywhere in the world. We started our training in 1987. We saw our first patients, I think, in January of 1988. And that was a huge part of my life. I spent most of my meal breaks and my free time in the evenings, my free time on weekends up in the hospital caring for men who were dying of AIDS and liver disease and heart disease and cancer, a lot of AIDS. And that was one of the most transformative things I've ever been involved in. And I got very involved in the training program, training my fellow prisoners to do that. I basically managed that program. And then eventually did some research, was able to do some publishing, and then started a national organization to get that model out into the world. Today, there's about 75 or 80 prison hospital programs in state and federal prisons in this country as a result of that work. And so, you know, that was leading this very disciplined life and not hanging out. So I was either active in some kind of service work or in my own rehabilitation work or in working out, taking care of myself, or I was studying and meditating. I just led this very, very disciplined life. I was really driven to transform myself and to serve. And, yeah. and I'm grateful for whatever it was that was driving. It was mostly regret, I think, that was driving it. And That was my next question. I think if the feeling, the emotion of regret was driving your behavior, I'm not sure you would have had such a transformative result. I think it probably is this feeling of discipline or gratitude almost, or appreciation for what it was that you did have. You mentioned, I wanted to create a legacy. I wanted to take responsibility. I wanted to have no regrets. I'm so curious what the feeling was that drove that transformation. And what was the thought? What was the belief that was creating that feeling for you? Because this work is extraordinary. And it's obviously incredibly impactful and has changed the lives of probably thousands and thousands of people. So I don't believe that an unwanted feeling like regret can take the credit for that kind of transformation. Well, actually, there was more going on than just regret. But I think regret was a powerful driver. And I don't think of regret as I think it's a very positive emotion, actually. Guilt is not very helpful. Shame is not very helpful. But regret is not about oneself. Regret is about others or remorse. Remorse and regret is like just a deep longing to undo the damage and to not create further harm. 
you know, I really had to reckon with, I had justified so many of my behaviors. And when I sat in those 12-step groups for the first couple of years and listened to one man after, I was a male prison, listened to one man after another, talk about their lives unraveling around cocaine use and the destruction on their families. Any artifice I still held on to about justifying that, you know, back then everybody was doing it, it was recreational drug judges, lawyers, doctors, you know, all that had to fall away. And I realized I'd been involved in something very harmful. And obviously it was totally out of alignment with my Buddhist values and the ethic principles of Buddhism. And so I really had to face that, that I'd been involved in a lot of harm. I could justify having ended up in a counterculture. I don't regret that. I think it was intelligent to end up in a counterculture in that area, in that era. But, you know, still I, a lot of confusion, a lot of selfishness, a lot of unconsciousness. And so, you know, I did regret that. And I developed this profound longing just to cause no more harm, just to cause no more harm. That became a profound driver of my spiritual development. And then, of course, I wanted to create benefit. I wanted to add benefit. And as I began living that way, of course, I experienced a lot of positive energy from that and a lot of meaningful, you know, I was leading a very meaningful life. I was doing good work. I was disciplining myself. I was developing spiritually through really deep meditation practice and you know, doing the 12-step work and the hospice work. And I had a very meaningful life. And so there was a lot of positive energy and positive momentum. But regret was an important part of it. But another part, and I'll just touch on here, the radical responsibility part of it. So another thing that happened very quickly when I got to that prison, the federal prison where I did my time, was I realized what an incredibly negative and corrosive environment it was. And that almost any prisoner you would talk to, it's not like everybody walks around with a skull on their face. I mean, many do, actually. There's humor, there's kind of dark humor, you know, gallows humor. But it's a very negative environment. You just ask the right question of any prisoner and outpours the victim story, right? And actually, the kind of ritual when you met somebody, you'd kind of usually go for a walk on the yard on a, after lunch or something, and they tell you their victim story, you tell your victim story, you know, how my fall partner screwed me over, my lawyer screwed me over. I'm not saying they go back and talk about their childhoods. They're talking about their case, right? And how they got a bum deal and a da-da-da-da-da, right? You know, and after I went to that ritual a couple of times, I didn't want to hear my own story anymore. I really didn't want to hear their stories, which probably wasn't very compassionate, but it's just not where I wanted to live, right? I'm very grateful I had enough training, spiritual training, psychological training before I got to that place that I really knew I didn't want to live that way. And I knew that if I didn't proactively do something to make it otherwise, I could come out of prison really broken and bitter and angry like most people do, right? And I didn't want to come out of prison that way, but I didn't want to live that way while I was there. And so I realized that the only way out for me, the only way I was going to possibly survive my time, and if I did create any kind of life for myself in the future, if I ever had that opportunity, was to embrace radical 100%, even 200% ownership for having gotten myself into that situation. Now, you know, I had lots of people, I could have gotten big into my story of blame, you know, because when the government prosecutes you, they don't play by the rules. They break all the laws. They threaten people. They do all kinds of underhanded and horrible things when they're, they play hardball, right? They admit it straight up. We play hardball. They could care less. And of course, they're never going to be held accountable for any of it. So by the courts, I could have focused on all that. Also, the reason I became the designated kingpin was because I refused to testify. And I was never going to testify. It's not because I was trying to be some stand-up guy. It's just my Buddhist values. I couldn't say, what, I'm going to make a deal and get off and somebody else is going to prison and their family is going to suffer. You know, that didn't match my values. So I was never going to do that or cooperate. And it wasn't because I was being a tough guy. But many other people did, right? And so I did a lot of people's time, including people I'd never met. 
they draw these conspiracies. It's all these networks of the 80% of the people I'd never met or had any direct connection to. But even the ones that I knew, there were some close associates, former associates that really stuck me in the back, right? And I could have focused on all that, but I made the choice to not focus on any of that. And in fact, anyone that I did feel any enmity towards, I was doing a practice for my Tibetan Buddhist tradition called Tonglin, called exchanging self for other on the medium of the breath, where you're really dissolving all that enmity and you're wishing the best for them and taking on all the suffering and offering all the good. And I did those practices very intensively so that I could dissolve any enmity that I might be holding towards anyone because I didn't want to carry that forward in my life, right? And I realized that I had to embrace this 200% responsibility and focus on how I got myself in there. And it's not like I earned my way in there. It wasn't hard to find things to own, right? But own that and what I'm going to do with it, right? Mm -hmm. And taking that approach that allowed me to create two national organizations that catalyzed two national movements, mindfulness movement, the prison Dharma movement, and then the prison hospice movement from a prison. So you're not supposed to be able to do that. If I'd gone and asked them, can I start a nomp? They would said, no, are you crazy? But I just did it transparently. And by the time they realized, at one point, 60 Minutes is, uh, what is that, a CBS show? Or I can't remember, 60 um, Minutes. Yep. 60 Minutes was going to start a Sunday night program. They were going to start a Wednesday night version, which I think they did eventually. And so they were sending crews around the country with like a producer and a camera person to see if they could find stories. And they'd heard about me and they came, they got permission to come into the prison and interviewed me and focused on the hospice program. And, and I got called down. And the process is it's getting proved. I got called down to this associate warden's office and he goes, you know, I'm looking and he says, I never heard of you before, but I've been here three years as associate warden and suddenly here and I've seen all this about you, this, this, and this program and this, and now CBS and this. What the hell happened here? And I said, I don't know, boss. You know, I'm just here, you know, doing my job, doing this. And he was like, he just shaking his head, you know, because this is not supposed to happen, right? But I did it by being honest, transparent, consistent, persistent really working on treating everybody equally, treating everybody with respect and doing it from that place of ownership. Quick story. I met a guy when I first went to work in the education department, when I first got there, 1985. And there was a guy in there who had the same job as I did. He was an inmate tutor and really smart guy. He'd been a psychologist and he'd had a thriving clinic in St. Louis, a big psychotherapy practice and clinic. And his wife divorced him, and I guess it's kind of a cry for help or something. He went and robbed a bank just with a note. So here he is in prison. But he was creating all these programs, like he had these evening programs, like how to be your own change agent and things like that. He was doing a lot of interesting stuff. And I knew already that they don't let prisoners do that kind of stuff, right? So I say, how are you doing all this stuff? And he said, well, let me tell you a secret. He says, when you want to do something, first get really clear about your motivation. Make sure your motivation is pure. And then take all the authority you need to do it, but not one shred more. And as soon as you no longer need that authority, let it go. And so it was kind of the combination of that approach and the radical responsibility that allowed me to create all kinds of programs in that prison and these two national organizations and national movements that are still thriving today, right? There was a war, and I don't say this to pat my own back, I just say this to point to the power of radical responsibility. I met a warden quite a number of years later, who a friend of mine was connected to. That's actually how he got connected. There's another story of some work I brought into the prison while I was there. But eventually he worked with this warden in another place. And then that warden eventually got reassigned to the prison where I had been, but shortly after I left. And years later, I met this warden. And he told me when he got there, uh, he was hearing stories about me for the first year he was there. 
And he says, it's really unusual that I'm hearing all these stories about this prisoner, right? I guess I left some kind of legacy there. And I don't say that to be self-congratulatory. I say that people think they can't do something. A maximum security prison is what sociologists call a total institution, which means it's a totalitarian state. Resistance is absolutely futile. And here they had a psychiatric ward and they had various different parts of that. They had what they called 10D, the people called it 10 dog, where they had people in four point restraints on concrete bunks being holed down at night, full of hat oil and Thorazine. And if you really buck the system, that's where you'd end up. So you couldn't buck the system. And so how do you get anything done in an environment? It's like the most powerless environment you could imagine being in. And how do you get anything done there? Well, I was able to start all kinds of programs and national movements and all that. How did I do that? By honoring my Buddhist values, being respectful, kind, courteous, consistent, disciplined, professional, and this approach of uh, radical responsibility and getting in relation with people, not in an manipulative way, but really to try to do good stuff. And eventually things happened and all these things were able to occur. And it really came out of that approach. So when I know a lot of times we tend to think, you know, there's so many problems and is this, and I, I'm powerless, I'm just one person, I can't do it. But actually, there's really no limitations to what we can do right. with the right mindset. Amen. You are such an example of what is possible against all odds. I mean, to be able to start these programs and to have people still talking about the programs after you've left the building. And now to be able to look back and be like, and these hospice programs are now thriving. They started with your idea and they were seated there and they're still thriving. And you are an example of what is possible to be able to create programming in some of the hardest places to do so. But you're also a great example of what radical responsibility looks like. The mind map that you had going was one of, you know, a belief that you carried through that created this radical responsibility that led to a movement in multiple ways. So I think you are a fascinating man. I really am grateful that you took the time to share your story with my audience. I want the audience to know that there are a lot of different ways that you can learn more about Dr. Mal. Um, his, like we had talk, mentioned earlier, his book, Radical Responsibility. Can people find that on Amazon in bookstores? Yeah, it has its own website, radicalresponsibilitybook.com. And you can download a free chapter there. And also right from that page, you can order the book on Amazon or Indie Books or Barnes & Noble, wherever you like to order it. Excellent. Mm -hmm. And then the courses. The Heart Mind Institute. He's yeah, got that's, courses that's his there. Heartmind.co, not .com, but .co. Heartmind.co, and you'll find all my online courses as well as all of the online summits we do. Yeah, and so we will put all of those in the show notes because you are a fascinating man, and I think that the world needs more examples of what is possible and what it looks like to be self-made. Is there anything else that you want to mention? while you have a captive audience. I'd just like to mention the kind of magic of commitment. You were talking about the motivations that drove me and so forth. There was another motivation that just occurred to me. I was new that once I figured out how the good time worked and once after my appeal happened and I knew I was looking at 14 and a half years, I knew I would just be shy of my 50th birthday when I got out if I did manage to survive my time. 
And, you know, I don't say that lightly because I saw a lot of people die there. I saw people die of violence. Two of our healthy hospice volunteers got sick and became hospice patients and died there. So I never had any surety that I would survive my time. But anyway, I knew I would be just short of my 50th birthday and really hard to get a life going at 50. And not like I had total regrets for my past life because a lot of it was part of the journey. But I also felt like, you know, I could have used my talents in more creative ways, even as someone discontented with the system or even someone immersed in a counterculture, I could have done more creative things possibly. And so I had a lot of motivation to do something with the rest of my life. And so I knew getting a life going at 50 was not going to be easy. You know, IRS had a judgment against me for $300,000. So I was going to come out of prison broke, deep in debt and with a serious criminal record, right? So how do you start a life? So I knew that I had to really focus on training myself while I was there. Just really focus on training myself and trust that the rest of it would work out. It turns out, thankfully, that the IRS never sued the collectant, so the statute of limitations ran out. My, I have a brother-in-law who's a lawyer, figured that out, and shortly after I got out, he worked that out, and I actually got a letter from the IRS, you know, almost apologizing for any inconvenience. <laughs> that was shocking, but anyway, so that went away. But also, from the time I got out, I've had nothing but opportunity. I spoke at the American Psychiatric Conference, National American Psychiatric Association Conference. I gave a keynote address there. Well, not a keynote, a plenary, but still to the whole audience about a year after I got out of prison, right? I've had nothing but opportunities traveling around the world to add value and do meaningful work. And I've had a fabulous life. I've had my challenges. I've had a couple of partners die on me. I'm married now to Sophie, but my previous partner was, we would have gotten married eventually. She died of cancer. My partner prior to that died of cancer. I lost my son two years ago. So the life challenges never end. And at the same time, I've really had this fabulous journey ever since getting out of prison and it really came down to commitment, to making a choice and getting committed to something. And that's created nothing but possibility for my life. And it still unfolds today. I'm very grateful. I get to do really meaningful work and I have an amazing life with my wife, Sophie, and I'm just very, very grateful. I feel very fortunate and very lucky. And in some ways, I just feel blessed. But at the same time, I know it does have something to do with having really committed to something in my life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the training, the practice, the commitment that you were so disciplined to do, of course, is leading to all of these opportunities. And whether you expect them or not, it does require you to do the work on the front end. And whether you knew you were even doing the work, that would lead to this. But you are solely, radically responsible for what it is, these opportunities that are now showing up for you. So I commend you for the work that you've done and the lives that you've impacted. So thank you so much for being here. And we will put all of the links to places people can find you in our show notes. struggling to achieve your goals? Do you find yourself getting sidetracked by distractions and obstacles along the way? It's time to take control of your mind and harness the power of self-control with Mind Over Matter. This three-hour program is packed with practical strategies and techniques to help you overcome challenges, stay focused, and achieve your goals. 
With expert guidance and real-world examples, you'll learn how to train your mind to stay on track and avoid the pitfalls that can derail your progress. Whether you're looking to improve your health, build your business, or reach any other goal, Mind Over Matter is the solution you've been searching for. So why wait? Sign up now and start achieving the success you deserve. Go to www.selfmadeyou.com.